Let's together pray. Heavenly Father, unless your spirit comes and shines his light on your word, we cannot understand it. And I ask you to help me be clear as I preach, and I pray that you would form in us the character of Christ. I ask this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. We are exactly halfway through our eight-week preaching series, and it seems fitting to do a little bit of a recap of where we've been. This series we're in is a treasure in a field, and I'm suggesting that the gospel has some things that people can easily pass by and not realize how valuable and important they are. So the first week as I set up the preaching series, I talked about the kingdom of God and how in Christ, the kingdom of God is made available in a new way, not just in the nation of Israel, but now for all people. They can press into the kingdom of God and experience it. The second week, we talked about how Jesus offers an abundant life for us, not when we die and go to heaven, but now to walk with him is to experience abundance in this life and his blessings. And in the third week, we looked at how he sets us free to obey, that we are not bound any longer in our sin, that he has overcome it. And while the presence of sin is still there, its power has been broken, and we now are free to obey him and by his spirit walk in his law. So those, um, those were the first three. And then last week, I talked to you about God being right next to you. He is imminently present. He is there and available to you and will sustain you. You can close your eyes right now and communicate with him. And sometimes our eyes get in the way. And I said, he's right there to help you. You can know him and experience him. Today, I want to talk about happiness, finding true happiness. I want you to imagine for a minute that I took a thousand-piece puzzle and dumped it on a table in front of you. In time, you could put that puzzle together. It would take you a while, but you could put it together. Now, if I show you the cover of the box as you're putting it together, it will significantly accelerate the time it takes to put it together, right? You'll know what the picture is that you're trying to complete. Today, as I look at the Beatitudes, which start the Sermon on the Mount, it's like God is showing us the cover to the box. He is saying, this is what I am building. This is the character of the man or woman who belongs in my kingdom. And he goes through eight different things. And it's helpful for us to know what God is doing so that we can participate with it, that we can join him in that, that we can yield our lives to that work. The Beatitudes are a little bit confusing to people. They're very famous, well-known. It's beautiful, poetic writing. And a lot of times when people come to the Sermon on the Mount, they jump over the Beatitudes. They kind of read them and go, oh, this is a neat little list. It's very poetic. I don't know what it means. Let's get on to the good stuff. Instead of dealing with character issues, let's get on to the law. Let's get on to the new law. Tell me, when do I have to turn the other cheek and when should I not? Tell me when I'm supposed to also give my cloak or go the extra mile. Let's get on to conduct and jump past this. And I'll admit, I often have done that. I want to get on to the other stuff and I skip this. But here's the thing about the gospel is that conduct always flows out of character. That your conduct is secondary. Your character is primary. And God does a work in you. So here's some initial thoughts about the Beatitudes. And some say there are seven, some say there are nine. Pretty clear to me there are eight. It's a really not a major issue. I'm going to number them as there will be eight. But some initial thoughts. All Christians should desire these. 
All Christians should desire these. All eight are for all Christians. It's not like the spiritual gifts, where one has the gift of evangelism, and another has the gift of being a pastor, and another is uh, an apostle or a prophet or whatever. It's sort of like the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Those, char- those fruits are for all believers. The same is true for the Beatitudes. These eight character traits are for all believers. So it's not like I can say, well, I'm poor in spirit, and Chuck is merciful, and someone else is a peacemaker, and someone else hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Now, I will admit, until we're perfected in glory, it might seem like that because some have advanced more in certain Beatitudes than others. However, all Christians are supposed to manifest all eight of the Beatitude characters in their characteristics in their life. Also, they are a work of grace in us. It is something that God is doing in us. Yes, we participate with it. Yes, we should long for it. But at the end of the day, God is doing this. It's his jigsaw puzzle, his picture on the box, and he is doing this. And it comes out of experiencing the grace of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, they they very explicitly distinguish a Christian from a non-Christian. And we're going to see that as we go through this. And I'm going, to, I'm going to give you a picture of what a Christian's character looks like on each one and what the non-Christian looks like and how the worldly man or woman responds in these situations. But first of all, I'm asking the question of who is truly happy? Who is truly happy in this world, in this life? If you look out at those outside of the kingdom of God, those that are in the kingdom of the world, so to speak, the people who seem to think they're happy are the rich, the gifted, the popular, the powerful, the sexy, the beautiful, the smart, successful, the cool, those who are in love. And while all of those things are okay, I'm not against any of those things in its own right, there are some pitfalls if you'll put the next slide up, there are three pitfalls, nicely alliterated, I discovered as I was thinking through the pitfalls of these worldly happiness sources. One is that they're temporary. They're fleeting. I think of that song by Bruce Springsteen, Glory Days, and it ministers to me greatly because I was a former high school jock. I played three different varsity sports and was a captain on, two, on three of the teams, and you know, it's like... And now I'm in my 40s, and I can't do those things anymore. And I think about how Bruce Springsteen sings about the glory days, how they pass you by in the wink of a young girl's eye. And he talks about this baseball player who could throw a speedball really great, and now he's old, and he just sits around talking about it and always will. You know, it's fleeting. It's passing away. Any one of those things I listed are temporary. They're temporary at best. They're also temperamental. They're fickle. And think about what's popular. What's popular right now is probably not going to be popular in six months. Just watch the award ceremonies each year for the, the different movies and the, the art and the songs. Those award shows, they just change. Who's in can be instantly who's out. The tabloids are going back and forth on what's popular, what's cool. 
I, I'm watching this um, show uh, series with my wife. It's about lawyers and politics. And the politician, one of the main characters, is in jail for uh, using funds incorrectly. And he's plotting his comeback in politics while he's still in prison. And, and a, commenter, a, a reporter commented on that. And he said, politics is just a game of shoots and ladders. And he's slid down and he's getting to climb right back up. And if you think about some of these things that bring, bring happiness, they're very much like that. Right now, I feel great. And then next week, I don't. And it's, it's very temperamental. And then also, it's tormenting because there's a taste of happiness, but it's very brief. And it almost would be better to not have it because to have it and then have it taken away torments us. Think about J.D. Rockefeller's famous question about wealth. He's rich, right? And they said, how much money do you need to be happy? And his answer was just a little bit more, right? Because it, it teases like it can satisfy, but it torments because it never fully does. And it's true for all of those things. Can you ever be powerful enough or smart enough or successful enough or cool enough or in love enough or whatever it might be? And so the worldly man or woman deals with that. Now, I want to look at what the godly man or woman has, true happiness. What is the gospel promising for us? Can we be happy in a way that doesn't go up and down like shoots and ladders? The context here is Jesus, and he is speaking to disciples. Really, it's really important to recognize that. He is not speaking to the crowds. It says when he saw the crowds, he went up onto the mountain, he sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he taught them. So Martin Luther, the reformer, points this out about the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Christ is saying nothing in this sermon about how we become Christians. There's nothing in here about how to become a Christian. There is merely a description of the life in Christ. So that's important to note and to remember who Jesus was speaking to. People who were his disciples who had already come to him as their teacher and they were walking in faith as much as they could understand. So just as there are two kingdoms the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this world, let's say, there are also two different character types, the character of the one kingdom and the character of the other kingdom. So I want you to seriously consider, as we go through these Beatitudes, I want you to seriously consider, where are you? Or maybe better yet, who are you? Do these describe you or not? Now, their order is important, Someone referred to them as a golden chain, where one goes into the next, goes into a next. They're not standalone. Again, context matters here. The first four talk about the characteristics of a person's interaction with God, and the second four talk about the characteristics of a person's interaction with other people. So I want to look at these eight, and obviously you could do eight weeks on these. We're not going to. But I want to just say what the characteristic is and then what the worldly person thinks about that topic. So the first one, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. By the way, this is why I think there are eight of these. The first one and the last one, all, they both point to the same reward. The kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are poor in spirit and those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So I see them as bookends on this. So blessed are the poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It is not about finances. It's not, these are spiritual qualities. Now poverty, physical poverty, can lead to a poverty of spirit, but it can also not lead to a poverty of spirit. 
It can build you up with pride and fear and a number of other things can happen. But to be poor in spirit is to come to the place of admitting moral bankruptcy. I am curved in on myself. I am broken beyond my own ability to repair. I am spiritually alienated from God and I need help. To get to that place is to become poor in spirit. And what this says is blessed is the man who's poor in spirit. Blessed is an interesting word. It's, the Greek word can be translated as happy, but you can't think happy like up and down emotions. It's, it's more like a steadfast kind of happiness. One scholar said, it's the man or woman who should be congratulated. Congratulations, you're poor in spirit. So it's a, it, blessed is, of course, what the ESV translated it as. But I like the word happy, but I want to think of it as eternally happy. A happy, steadfastly happy. Let's think of it that way. The person who gets to their place of total spiritual bankruptcy is actually eternally happy. They are blessed because they are poor in spirit, because now the kingdom of heaven is theirs. They belong. They fit in. This is an incredible invitation. Have you failed morally? Have you been divorced? Have you been broken? Has your life not worked out well? Jesus was called the friend of sinners because he hung out with people who were not succeeding. They were getting to the end of themselves, and he was welcoming them in, and they were rejoicing. They were marveling at this. In his day, that was unheard of. People thought only the successful, the wealthy, the good-looking, all those kind of people, they were the ones that had God's blessing. And he's saying, if you're bankrupt, you've got God's blessing. Blessed is the man who's poor in spirit, spiritually bankrupt. Now, what does the non-Christian say? Well, the Christian says, I'm unworthy enough to be invited. Wow. And we're blown away by that. The non-Christian says, don't admit weakness. Never let them see you sweat, as the commercial says. Right? That's what the worldly man says. You don't want to admit this weakness. You admit weakness, someone's going to take advantage of you. They're going to walk right over you to admit that you're poor in spirit. Right? That's what the worldly man says. These things in the golden chain, it goes from poor in spirit then to blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. That doesn't mean you're grieving the loss of a loved one, because that's true of everybody, right? It doesn't matter which of the two kingdoms you're in. If you're a Christian or a non-Christian, everybody has to grieve and mourn for those that pass away. Or let's say something that fails in your life. It might not be a death of a person, but it could be you're mourning the loss of a job, let's say. Those things come to everybody. So what is Jesus talking about here? The people he's saying are blessed for mourning are the ones who are mourning over their spiritual condition. They've come to the place of being poor in spirit, and now they are grieved by that. They have a broken and contrite heart, as Psalm 51 puts it, and and what we read this morning. They are at the place where they've been humbled by that. They've been broken down by that, and they don't like it. They don't like being spiritually bankrupt, so they, they grieve over that. They're, they're mourning it, but they know that God accepts a contrite heart. Now, what does the non-Christian think about this topic? They say, get over it. Quit licking your wounds. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. This is what the world says. They, they sing alongside uh, Billy saying, I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. The sinners are much more fun, Right? I love that song. The theology is horrible. (laughs) Billy Joel sings that song, and it's terrible. 
Really? You'd rather laugh with the sinners that are more fun than cry with the saints? You don't understand which kingdom you're in. But, but who wants to mourn? But here, God is saying, blessed are those who mourn. You will be comforted. There's a big promise there. You will be comforted. So you go from being poor in spirit and mourning, and then you go to the next one, which is blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness is a gentle approach. It's a, a humble approach. It's natural that it fits between number two and number four because the, those who are mourning have really been brought low. But then if they're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, you have a meek approach to it. You don't presume to solve the problem and go fix everything that's not, made right, that's not currently righteous in the world. You, you're meek. Jesus was meek in his approach. It doesn't mean he's a wimp, but there was a, a, a gentle approach to it. There's a, an approach that relies on God's power, but still pursues uh, righteousness. So the Christian is trusting God's sovereignty. To be meek is to trust God's sovereignty in things and to not try to force your own will. You keep your ambitions in check. What does the non-Christian do? Non-Christian says survival of the fittest. The non-Christian says make your own breaks. I think it's interesting that the meek inherit the earth because right now it's the self-ambitious, the self-assertive people that get the, the current earth. They're the ones that run over the meek. They take what they want. They're the fittest, so they survive. They're, they dominate. They're bold and, and not in a good way and self-ambitious. And so they look totally different. Hunger and thirsting for righteousness. Righteousness comes in three categories. There's social, there's moral, and then there's legal. Legal righteousness is this. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. So anyone who is not in Christ is condemned and stands condemned already. John 3, 16 through 18 talks about that. So there's a legal righteousness that we hunger and thirst for. I want to be forgiven. I want Jesus to pay for my sins, which he does on the cross. And I found his righteousness because of what he's done. I didn't do anything for it. I'm forgiven because he paid my price. He paid my penalty and I'm not condemned anymore. But it's not only that. There's a moral righteousness too, where I actually am growing into his character. I'm beginning to live like him, to think like him, to say and do the things that he said and did. That is a moral transformation that is happening. And then there's also a social righteousness. So we look out at the world and we see where there's injustice and brokenness and poverty and we long for those things to be restored and we pray for them to happen and then we work where it's in our power to bring these things about. The social gospel is part of the whole gospel. And so there is a social righteousness that the Christian person hungers and thirsts for. And the Christian glories in the cross. And this is what's hard for the world to get because the cross shows my sin. It shows what I caused, that I should be on that cross, and it shows that, and so it deeply brings me down. But then it also shows me God's love. I'm so loved that he was willing to do that. And so the Christian is able to walk a fine line between um, being humbled and brought low by our sin, but then being loved immensely by God, and so restored into fellowship. It's very different for the non-Christian. The non-Christian says, don't judge me. That's not my cross. Don't tell me about that cross. Just because Jesus died on a cross, I didn't put him on that cross. And the pride of the non-Christian says, I don't want anything to do with that. Take your religion away from me. Those are very, see the different characters for the two kingdoms? 
Then it goes on. So those are the first four about our relationship to God. Then the next four talk about our relationship to other people. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Now you could say, in both kingdoms, there are merciful people, right? There are people who do kind things, but are definitely not Christians. But the kind of mercy we're talking about here is the, the mercy that recognizes that sin is the problem, and you want to see the consequences of sin alleviated. So that's the kind of mercy that God has. And because he's been merciful to me, then I extend mercy. Because he's forgiven me, then I can forgive others. And I look around at people whose lives are in trouble, and, and I have grace for them in mercy. I don't stand in judgment over them. I think, how can I help lift that person back up? I've been lifted back up. How can I extend that to another person? That's the kind of mercy we're talking about here. What does the non-Christian do? The non-Christian is a partial judge. They're they're not impartial. They stand like this in judgment over the person. Of course, they have grace for themselves, and they sit there like this and go, well, you deserve it. You deserve it. You got what's coming to you. That's the heart of the the non-Christian, whereas the Christian goes, my, my circumstances could so easily have gotten me where you are. It's but by the grace of God go I, as we say. That's a different kind of mercy. Then the pure in heart. This is God's work entirely. I could work my entire life to become pure in heart, and it will still be covered with black soot. But God is making my heart pure and your heart pure. That's his work. He comes in and he transforms from the inside. He fixes us. He makes us clean. He washes us, as the psalmist says, and I will be whiter than snow. The Christian is daily becoming Christ-like. The non-Christian is cynical. When the non-Christian sees somebody do something that is like Christ, they become very cynical of it, and they think that they have some secret motive for it. They can't possibly, they don't have a context for how could somebody do something actually that is selfless. They think you've got some angle. There's mistrust there and cynicism looking out on a, on a world, and they think everyone is a hypocrite because they know they are. But you know, sometimes Christians aren't actually being hypocrites. They're just living into the purity of heart that God is bringing. And they're doing it out of love for God and for others. They're obeying the two greatest commandments, the summary of the law. Then the peacemakers. Not peacekeepers. Peacekeepers say, hey, can't we all just get along? Can't we coexist? Why do you guys have to, I don't want conflict. No conflict. Peace at all costs. Peacemakers are very different. Last week in that Colossians passage, we saw how the peace is made by the blood of the cross. That it was on the cross that God is reconciling the world to himself. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. You're like God. You make peace by proclaiming the good news. This is actually about evangelism. You go out and you tell people, hey, repent and believe. This is a good deal. Look at this treasure buried in a field. It's amazing. We should go and do this. And we are compelled to evangelize and to share. Whether or not you use the E word, I don't care. But you have to go and do this. Because this is what God does. Jesus said, I came to seek and save the lost. He was on a mission and his people are on a mission. But what does the non-Christian say? Keep your religion to yourself. Don't impose your views on me. How dare you presume to preach to me or tell me that I'm a sinner and I need Jesus? You know, that's the attitude of the one kingdom. The other kingdom out of love goes and says, look at how good this is. We're not trying to proselytize you. We're simply trying to say, this is a good deal. Consider it. Consider what Jesus is offering. And then, of course, the last one. Blessed are those who are persecuted. 
for righteousness sake. You have to catch that for righteousness sake part because lots of people are persecuted for all sorts of causes, sometimes for doing really stupid stuff. And, and you get persecuted if you do things that are not good, sometimes. We're talking about Christ's righteousness. As you're living like he lives, you start to get persecuted. And the Christian looks at that and actually rejoices because you're sharing in the master's suffering. When the disciples were first persecuted, they went away rejoicing because they had been counted worthy to suffer shame for the kingdom. Can you imagine that? You can if you're a Christian. Because you look at the master and you think, Jesus suffered? Who am I to think that I'm going to escape suffering? But if he's counting me worthy to suffer with him, praise be to God. Give me the courage to do it. Give me the joy, Lord, to do it. The non-Christian is the persecutor. So the non-Christian is persecuting the Christian. He or she is the one that's causing the problem. They feel exposed in the presence of a real Christian. A person who has God's spirit and is walking with him and has that kind of steadfast happiness unnerves a worldly person. And there's only two things you can do with it. Well, three. You can flee and run away from it and avoid it. You can attack it and persecute it, or you can surrender to it and experience the happiness. You can come into the kingdom. Blessed are those who have these character qualities, and increasingly in their lives, they are happy eternally. Now, what do we do with this? I think we sincerely have to judge ourselves. I think we have to lay out the two characters and say, where am I? Who am I? Is this describing me or not? And if this doesn't describe you, or at least the first description isn't fitting you as much as the second one, you might need to deal with the fact that you may not be a Christian. And as Martin Luther said, this doesn't tell you how to become a Christian, but Jesus does elsewhere. It's pretty easy. Repent and believe the good news. That's how you become a Christian. You repent and believe in Jesus and surrender your life to him and become one of the disciples. And then these things start happening because God is putting that puzzle together. That's his work. That's what he's about. Now, what if you are already a Christian and you look at this and you think, yeah, I like all those things and I want to see that in my life, but I'm kind of, yeah, it's not, I'm not doing that perfectly. That's okay. None of us are. None of us are. However, we can ask God to help us. We can take a good look at the ones where we came up weak. Do you lack mercy for others? You can go to God and say, help me become merciful. And he will give you opportunities. He will help you grow in that area. In this way, you can become what he wants. We should covet all eight of these because it's a true happiness, unlike the very temporary and temperamental and tormenting worldly happiness. This is good news. This is really good news. This is the kind of thing we should go and give everything for and come and buy this field because the treasure's in there. It's a, it's a happiness the world knows nothing about, but Jesus is promising that. I want to invite you to join me in prayer now, asking the Lord to help us in this topic. Father, I thank you that you are committed to us and that you are carrying on to completion the good work that you have begun in your people. I pray for you to help us. Fill us with your spirit. Help us to become like Christ. Help us to become like he's described here. And Father, for anyone in this room of whom this description doesn't fit, I pray that you would move them right now by your spirit to surrender their lives to you, that you would change their hearts, give them courage to, pray out, to cry out in prayer to you, Lord, and let the new life begin to flow in. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.